Hello everyone, and thank you very much for coming, and for those of you who've already been here this morning, thank you very much for coming back. My name's Dr Sandy Byrne, and I'm a university lecturer in English. And... I'm really sorry, you can't hear at the back. Oh, okay, in that case, can we have the mic on, please? Oh, in that case, I shall speak up. It's probably all that banging from the, the building that's going on that's making it difficult to hear. I will indeed. Do you want to come forward to the front? There is indeed. So I'm the University Lecturer in English and Director of Studies in English and Creative Writing at the Department. And this afternoon... I'm going to try to give you some good reasons for reading Jane Austen. I gave the title of the lecture as Jane Austen not being all about bonnets and balls. And that's not to say there's anything wrong with being interested in the dress or the dance of the period. But I'm hoping to say that there are some other good reasons for reading Jane Austen as well. <coughs> so, a clue, this is not the reason for reading Jane Austen, <laughs> lovely though he may be, and I'm devastated to tell you that there is no wet shirt scene in Jane Austen's novels, but we can do very well without it. Not everybody liked Jane Austen. As you can see, Mark Twain was not a Janeite. Every time I read Pride and Prejudice, I want to dig her up and hit her over the skull with her own shin bone. Then he's just jealous. <laughs> These are the novels that I'm talking about, the six major novels, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, Emma, Persuasion and Northanger Abbey, the unfinished novel, The Watsons, the unfinished novel, Sanditon, and the early novel, Lady Susan, which wasn't published in Austen's lifetime. Let's talk a bit about the themes of Jane Austen's novels, and again... I'm very sorry to say, no zombies. <laughs> but what we do get is, of course, love and romance, but all bound up with money and property. And that doesn't mean that the girls are gold diggers, but it does mean that they are very concerned with the important theme of security. The individual and society, the relationship between personal desire and civic and other kinds of duty and responsibility, very important in Jane Austen. Morality, broadly, she, she doesn't preach. Austen's novels don't hit you on the head with morality, but they do offer moral <coughs> lessons. Seeming and being, a very important theme in Austen. One of the great crimes in Austen is being hypocritical, pretending to be something you're not. And Austen is very good at showing up hypocrites. But... No zombies, sorry. So property. This is the kind of property that Jane Austen is allegedly talking about. Some people say that Chatsworth House was the model for Pemberley. In fact, most of the houses are a bit further down the social scale than Chatsworth, but I wouldn't say no. <laughs> Look at the famous opening of Pride and Prejudice. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a young man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. However little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first entering a neighbourhood, 
the truth, this truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding families that he is considered the rightful property of some one or other of their daughters. Now look at the word choices here. Possession of a good fortune. Not just any old fortune, a good fortune. It reminds me of that Marilyn Monroe film where she says she wants to marry a rich millionaire. Not any old millionaire, a rich millionaire. <laughs> a good fortune. And, and yet he is the rightful property. The man who is in possession of a good fortune is going to become the possession, the rightful property of one or other of the local daughters. And one of the great things about Jane Austen's work is you can predict some of the themes from the very first opening pages. And this is telling you, yeah, Pride and Prejudice is going to be about pride and about prejudice, and it's going to be about love, and it's going to be about romance, but it's also going to be about property, about who owns what, who wants what, who has the right to what, and the whole concept of value. And when we think of the fate of women in those days who did not marry property, we can begin to understand why this is so very important. What would happen to you if you were well-educated, not unintelligent, but brought up as a middle-class young lady with very few marketable skills, and you don't marry? What are your options? Well, they're not huge. Look at the sums in this. This is the opening of Mansfield Park. About 30 years ago, Miss Mariah Ward of Huntingdon, with only £7,000, that's her fixed, had the good luck to captivate, which is not too far off capture, <laughs> Sir Thomas Bertram of Mansfield Park in the county of Northampton, and to be thereby raised to the rank of a baronet's lady. £7,000 plus a bit of beauty and good reputation doesn't quite equal a baronet's lady, doesn't quite equal a baronet. We've got an unequal sum there, so luck came into that equation. With all the comforts and consequences of an handsome house and large income. All Huntingdon exclaimed on the greatness of the match and her uncle, the lawyer himself, allowed her to be at least £3,000 short of any equitable claim to it. So, a baronet with a nice house and a good income equals a woman of beauty and reputation and £10,000. We've got here a marital sum, a marital equation, all about property and what you're worth. And this whole question of worth versus value comes into the novels a lot. Not for nothing is Fanny Price called Fanny Price. Seeming of being, let's look at the beginning of Emma. Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. The real evils indeed of Emma's situation were the power of having rather too much her own way and a disposition to think a little too well of herself. These were the disadvantage which threatened alloy to her many enjoyments. The danger, however, was at present so unperceived they did not by any means rank as misfortunes with her. Now here, Austin giveth and Austin taketh away. 
the narrative voice tells us things and then it modifies them. It says, well, it seemed like this, but it was actually like that. There was a lot of this, but there was a little of that. There was a little of this and a lot of that. So poor Emma loses her mother, but she gets Miss Taylor. Well, Miss Taylor is almost like a mother, but she's not quite a mother. And this sets up an important theme of Emma, what things seem like and what they really are, because Emma is in part a kind of detective story. Whom will Emma marry? Which of her suitors is really a kind of symbolic brother and which one is going to be the suitor? What's going on with Frank Churchill? What's going on with Jane Fairfax? And Emma, who thinks herself the kind of seer, the kind of great predictor and manipulator, puppet mistress, if you like, and matchmaker, is actually blind to most of that and gets the answers wrong. And, of course, we have the wonderful Mrs Elton, who tries to seem much higher in the social ranking than she really is. I'm having to, to go through this at a gallop, you realise. There is much, much more to Austen than this, but I hope this will give you a taster. Style is what we read Austen for. And I think the narrative voice is the thing that we most miss in the adaptations. Because that deadly lightness of touch, that wonderful irony that the narrative voice can use, is what is most likely to be lost in a filmed or staged adaptation. Because the, the director has the choice. Will there be a voiceover, which might seem a bit clunky, Will he or she put the words into the mouth of a character? Well, the problem there is, as with the BBC adaptation, you get characters saying things they never would say, even if they thought them. The narrative voice is very flexible, and it uses a number of different techniques. The mock formal, the ironic, the comedic. It produces wonderfully lifelike dialogue where the kinds of words used and the kind of style used tells us about the personalities of the characters just as much as what they say tells us about their personalities. Austin makes great use of free and direct discourse, a technique that we usually associate with modernism, but which Austin used much earlier than that. And it's sometimes metatextual. It refers to its own textuality, its own fictionality. It has a bit of a laugh at us for getting so involved in the story, so much empathising with the characters and behaving as though this were really happening, that it draws us out and has a little laugh at us. The narrative voice, that's the storyteller, has an omniscient perspective. That means they can see anything that's going on, they know it all. They could go into the mind of Mr Elton and Mrs Elton and Harriet Smith. On the whole, those narrative voices don't. They're usually limited to one focaliser, one character through whose eyes we see, and that is usually the heroine, though very occasionally we get someone else's perspective. And that has great possibilities. That combination means that we, the readers, see the inner motivations of the heroines. We feel with them. We can be close to them. But the fact that it's not a first-person narration, it's not the heroine tells, telling us the story, means that there's enough distance for the narrative voice to be ironic, to be judgmental, to look from the outside. So it's the best of both worlds. And that narrative voice 
isn't indifferent, isn't dispassionate, it's opinionated. And I think that's one of the greatnesses of Austin. It's even judgmental. Even of lovely, sweet, charming Anne Elliot, sometimes the narrative voice just has a little dig at her expense. So here is the narrative voice being parodic. This is from Northanger Abbey. Her mother was a woman of useful plain sense, with a good temper, and what is more remarkable, with a good constitution. She had three sons before Catherine was born, and instead of dying in bringing the latter into the world, as anybody might expect, she still lived on, lived to have six children more, to see them growing up around her, and to enjoy excellent health herself. And this is parodying the sentimental novel of the 18th century, where the heroine must be orphaned or at least bereft of her mother at an early stage so that she can be launched into the world and have adventures and be vulnerable and have some kind of terrible sadness in her background. This is the narrative voice being satirical. <coughs> this is all about the odious Sir Walter Elliot. Vanity was the beginning and the end of Sir Walter Elliot's character. Vanity of person and of situation. He had been remarkably handsome in his youth, and at 54 was still a very fine man. Few women could think more of their personal appearance than he did, nor could the valet of any new-made lord be more delighted with the place he held in society. He considered the blessing of beauty as inferior only to the blessing of a baronetcy, and the Sir Walter Elliot who united these gifts was the constant object of his warmest respect <laughs> and devotion. A lot of satire in persuasion at the beginning is devoted to Sir Walter and in fact when we read the novel we, we might start to think goodness is this all about Sir Walter and it's very clever that the heroine doesn't even arrive until you're some pages in and arrives with the words she was only Anne which tells you a lot about her position in the family and of course gets you on her side. And then mock formality this fabulous memorable sentence beautifully balanced beautifully symmetrical might come from dr johnson and it falls us into thinking that it's making some kind of pronouncement something didactic i'm telling you like it is or some kind of nomic wisdom something like 30 days half september whereas in fact it's a bit of a joke it's reversing the petrarchan trope the idea the woman is the hunted, the deer that flees before the hunter who's chasing her, her and showing itself against the, the, the leaves but will be eventually shot, by saying, actually, women here are the predators and men are the prey. And it is mock formal. This is a definition of irony, a subtly humorous perception of inconsistency in which an apparently straightforward statement or event is undermined by its context so as to give it a very different significance. And here is an example. Happy for all her maternal feelings was the day on which Mrs. Bennett got rid of her two most deserving daughters. I love that. And Sir Walter prepared with condescending bows for all the afflicted tenantry and cottagers who might have a hint to show themselves. So this is the, the 
vain and arrogant Sir Walter Elliot having to leave Kellynch, having to leave his estate because he's so feckless and such a spendthrift that he's got to let it. He's been a very bad landlord and yet so blind is he, so lacking in self-knowledge that he thinks all his tenants are going to be lining the route as he leaves weeping and he's ready to with his condescending bow. So it's a beautiful bit of irony that shows him up for what he is. And it's not only the narrative voice that produces irony, but the characters also, where appropriate, can be ironic. This is Mr. Bennett talking about Mr. Collins. No, sorry, talk, talking about, about Wickham. He is as fine a fellow, said Mr. Bennett, as soon as they were out of the house, as ever I saw. He simpers and smirks and makes love to us all. I am prodigiously proud of him. I defy even Sir William Lucas himself to produce a more valuable son-in-law. You can always rely on Mr. Bennett for a bon mot. This is the definition of comedy. A play or other literary composition written chiefly to amuse its audience by appealing to a sense of superiority over the characters depicted. A comedy will normally be closer to the representation of every life than a tragedy and will explore common human failings rather than the tragedy's disastrous crimes. Ossie's very good at revealing common human failings. I dread to have met her. Just think what she'd say afterwards. <laughs> One of the sources of comedies is comic monsters in Jane Austen. But sometimes they walk a very thin line between the comic and the monstrous. I sometimes think that Mrs Norris, for example, is just too appalling to be funny. General Tilney is a comic monster. He's overbearing, he's tyrannous, he thinks he's cunning, but he's transparent. Lady Catherine de Burr, she's bullying, she's proud and pompous. You're <coughs> invited to laugh at her and feel superior to her. Mr Collins, he's pompous, he's silly, he's self-important. Mrs Norris, she's encroaching, she's toadying to her superiors, but unkind to her inferiors, and we are very much invited to dislike that. Her hypocrisy. Mrs Elton, social climbing, self-important. Sir Walter Elliot, vain, snobbish, doesn't care a jot about his most deserving daughter. And these are comic characters who are not monstrous. And there are many of them, as you see. So John Middleton, the bucolic squire from Sense and Sensibility. Mrs Jennings, a lovely burlesque, lower life character. She's what we would, might call an arriviste. She's, she's wealthy, nouveau riche. And she's straight out of an 18th century comedy, as is Lydia Bennett, the, the thoughtless romp of Pride and Prejudice, who has quite a lot in common with the 18th century character Lydia Languish. Mrs Musgrove, silly character but well-intentioned. A lovely phrase uh, in association with her. She's talking to Mrs Croft about being well-travelled. And of course Mrs Croft, wife of the Admiral, <laughs> has been all over the world. Mrs Croft says, pretty well, ma'am, in the 15 years of my marriage, I have crossed the Atlantic four times and have been more than once to the East Indies and back again. But I never went beyond the Straits and never was in the West Indies. We do not call Bermuda or Bahama, you know, the West Indies. Mrs Musgrove had not a word to say in dissent. 
She could not accuse herself of having ever called them anything in the whole course of her life. <laughs> and Mr. Bennett, of course, dryly witty in Pride and Prejudice, although I do think that although many readers like Mr. Bennett, they enjoy his wit, he is on the cusp of being a comic monster because he fails in responsibility. He fails in the responsibilities of a father. And Austin is very good at this on shades of grey, and that's nothing to do with Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> hasten to add, on making characters believable because they're not wholly good or wholly bad. I said that one of the great things about Austin's dialogue is that you can often tell what a character is like, not just from what they say, but how they say it, on their choice of words, the length of the sentences they make, whether they've got lots of exclamation marks, whether they use slang, all sorts of things like that. So, for example, this is characteristic Mr Bennett. You mistake me, my dear. I have a high respect for your nerves. They are my old friends. <laughs> I have heard you mention them with consideration these 20 years at least. He tends to use a style which is fairly formal and fairly ponderous, but actually has a bit of a bite underneath it. And Lydia uses lots of exclamation marks, often lots of, of short sentences and phrases, and expressions such as la. La, you are so strange, but I must tell you how it went off. And there was my aunt all the time I was dressing, preaching and talking away, just as if she was reading a sermon. However, I did not hear above one word in ten, for I was thinking, you may suppose, of my dear and so on. <laughs> Mr Collins, long sentences, ponderous doesn't use one word when ten will do. She is unfortunately of a sickly constitution which has prevented her from making that progress in many accomplishments which she could not have otherwise failed of, as I am informed by the lady who superintended her education and who still resides with them. But she is perfectly amiable and often condescends, that's a word he uses a lot, to drive by my humble, that's another Mr Collins word, abode in her little phaeton and ponies. He can't say house, he has to say humble abode. Sir Thomas Bertram similarly speaks in long, very formal sentences. If you count the number of words in that sentence, you'll see there's a lot of them. And he tends to use inverted sentences, lots of double negatives, all sorts of more complicated words like sanguine and provision, He's old-fashioned, he's ponderous, he's formal. And if you contrast that with his son, young Tom, you'll see the difference. I see what you're at. You're quizzing me and Miss Anderson. I sat there an hour one morning waiting for Anderson with only her and a little girl or two in the room. You know, girl or two, who knows? The governess being sick or run away. And the mother in and out every moment with letters of business. And I could hardly get a word or look from the young lady. Nothing like a civil answer. She screwed up her mouth and turned from me with such an air. So different from his father. Notice the slang word, quizzing, which you would never get from his father. And then, of course, John Thorpe, who swears... Now, that is definitely a no-no in Austin. It's represented, of course, with a dash, but we, we know what he's saying. And that really places him for Austin, as does his recommending to a young lady a very shocking novel, The Monk. So 
not only what he says but how he says it and he's showing off and this again is a crime in Austin he's boasting of his possessions he's boasting of how much he's spent on them he boasts about how quickly his horse can get from A to B completely forced him <coughs> as we discover and he tells anecdotes designed to show him in a good light all these are racking up points against him curricle hung you see seat trunk sword case splashing board the equivalent would be somebody saying you want to see my ferrari look at these bucket seats lovely burnt orange color is it costly <laughs> you know and here he's talking about books and he despises novels so he's completely damned <laughs> says, I think you must like Udolpho if you were to read it. It is so very interesting. Not I, Faith. No, if I read any, it shall be Mrs. Radcliffe's. Her novels are amusing enough. They are worth reading. Some fun and nature in them. Well, Udolpho was written by Mrs. Radcliffe, said Catherine, with some hesitation from the fear of mortifying him. No, sure, was it? I remember, so it was. I was thinking of that other stupid book, written by that woman they make such a fuss about. She who married the French emigrant. I suppose you mean Camilla? Yes, that's the book. Such unnatural stuff. An old man playing at seesaw. I took up the first volume once and looked it over, but I soon found it would not do. Indeed, I guessed what sort of stuff it must be before I saw it. As soon as I heard she'd married an emigrant, I was sure I should never be able to get through it. <laughs> so he's prejudiced. He makes gut assumptions. He doesn't know what he's read, and he's unable to value novels. So he's definitely damned. Now, free and direct discourse, sometimes free and direct style, is where the narrative remains in the third person, so he said or she said, right? but that takes on the characteristics of the person who is speaking or thinking. And what this does is to get the reader closer to the character. If I were to say to you, John said that it was time to go. There's very clearly someone between you and John. I'm telling you what John said. Or if I said, it was time to go, said John. I'm marking that I'm telling you what John said. But free and direct discourse gets you just that little bit closer. It's not the same as stream of consciousness, where there's a representation of character's thought using the first person, using I, it's getting that way. Her astonishment, as she reflected on what had passed, was increased by every review of it. That she should receive an offer of marriage from Mr Darcy. Now look at the difference between those two sentences. Her astonishment, as she reflected, someone, someone's telling you that, but then, seamlessly, that she should receive an offer of marriage from Mr Darcy. There's no storyteller there, but it isn't that I should receive an offer, it's that she, so it's keeping this third person pronoun, but effacing the narrator, the storyteller. And Austin does this a lot and she moves seamlessly in and out of this. Look at this. And which must appear at least with equal force in his own case was almost incredible. It's Elizabeth emphasising something to herself. 
and the famous episode <coughs> in which they're all strawberry picking at Donwell Abbey is another fabulous example of this. Because what we get here is not Mrs Elton said this and Mrs Elton said that, but a kind of condensed version of Mrs Elton's continual stream of comments broken up, as you might hear it, floating across the hot air of a summer's day at Donwell Abbey. And as you're desperately trying to screen it out and have your own conversation or thoughts. And just as Mrs Elton's conversation skips from one thing to another and contradicts itself in doing so, starting off by saying that strawberries are absolutely the best fruit and this kind the finest in all England and ending up saying that currants are much more refreshing. So this skips about. Oh, I won't read it because it will take too long, but I, I do recommend you have a look at this for the technique. Austin is sometimes criticised for not showing things outside a fairly narrow world. Some critics have said, well, look, there was a war going on. There were earth-shaking events going on. Europe was being broken up and put together again. Why does she concentrate just on which bonnet someone's wearing, whether they can get their shoe roses by proxy and falling in love? To that, I would first say, why not? She manages very nicely to make interesting <coughs> internal earthquakes. But secondly, I would say that although the settings may be mostly domestic, although this mostly is from a woman's perspective, outside events do impinge. So for a start, don't believe people when they tell you that there is never a scene in Austin where no woman is present, because it's not true. There is a scene in Mansfield Park between Sir Thomas Bertram and young Tom, when Sir Thomas is taking young Tom to task for his debts. In Emma, we sometimes see Mr Knightley's perspective, and we sometimes see his emotions, particularly through involuntary body language, particularly when he's feeling a bit off when he's losing his usual energy and forcefulness because he's jealous of Frank Churchill and in doubt of Emma. So we don't always get just a woman's perspective. And this is one of the points. This is a bit unfair to Tony Tanner because he does go on to say other things, but just taking this quotation for a minute. During a decade in which Napoleon was effectively engaging, if not transforming Europe, Jane Austen composed a novel in which the most important events are the fact that a young man changes his manners and a young lady changes her mind. Yes, those are the most important events, but the outside world is impinging. We see the militia on the move. Why are the militia on the move? Because there are fears of an invasion. Why are women in competition with each other? Because there's a war on, and many young eligible men have been killed and there aren't enough to go round, and many eligible young men are off fighting. And people are hard up. Times are hard. In Persuasion, in Mansfield Park, the Navy is terribly important. Austin's narrative voice and her characters praise the Navy. They talk about how naval men are risking their lives for their country. 
people are going away and they are coming back damaged, as we see in persuasion, or they're not coming back at all. Future marriages are ruined because people don't live long enough for their beloved to come back, as in persuasion. Look at the ending of persuasion. He's talking about Anne Elliot. She might have been absolutely rich and perfectly healthy and yet be happy. Her spring of felicity was in the glow of her spirits, as her friend, sorry, this is, um, this is Mrs Smith, first of all, as her friend Anne's was in the warmth of her heart. Anne was tenderness itself, and she had the full worth of it in Captain Wentworth's affection. His profession was all that could ever make her friends wish that tenderness less. The dread of a future war, all that could dim her sunshine. She gloried in being a sailor's wife, but she must pay the tax of quick alarm for belonging to that profession, which is, if possible, more distinguished in its domestic virtues than in its national importance. Very interesting phrasing here. She must pay the tax of quick alarm. People who have property, men, have to pay a war tax in coin. But Austin's narrative voice is here saying, women pay a tax too. Women pay the tax of anxiety, of concern for their brothers, their fathers, their husbands, their sweethearts, who might come back without a leg or without an arm or not at all. And notice the phrasing here, for belonging to that profession, not just for being a sailor's wife, she's in the Navy. Austin is saying that Anne Wentworth is a naval woman. She belongs to that profession. It's subtly done, but I think beautifully done. It's pointing out, as Austin's endings so often do, yeah, I've given you a happy ending, boy got girl, but it's not all roses, it's not all sunshine. I mentioned metatextuality and text which draws attention to its own textuality and metafiction draws attention to the devices of fiction. Sometimes Austin's narrative voice breaks frame. It reminds us that we're reading and, and holding a book which doesn't work awfully well when you're reading it online or on a Kindle, sadly. And then she hadn't heard of Kindle. Famously at the end of Northanger Abbey. The anxiety which in this state of their attachment must be the portion of Henry and Catherine and of all who loved either as to its <coughs> final event can hardly extend, I fear, to the bosom of my readers who will see in the telltale compression of the pages before them that we are all hastening together to perfect felicity. Don't they laugh at us. You knew there was going to be a happy ending. You knew that they were going to get married. And because there aren't many pages left, it's obviously coming. <laughs> to begin perfect happiness at the respective ages of 26 and 18 is to do pretty well. And professing myself, it is this sudden reference to this person who's arrived in front of us, moreover convinced that the general's unjust interference, so far from being really injurious to their felicity, was perhaps rather conducive to it, by improving their knowledge of each other and adding strength to their attachment, I leave it to be settled by whomsoever it may concern whether the tendency of this work 
be altogether to recommend parental tyranny or reward filial disobedience. <laughs> a lovely joke at the expense of the kind of generic happy ending and the conventions of the novel and a lovely preempting of the kind of criticism she might have got at the time when the novel was expected to give a good moral lesson. She's saying, oh, I don't do that. Maybe I'm recommending parental tyranny as a way of getting people together. Earlier in Northanger Abbey, she's already had a bit of a joke at the expense of the kind of novel convention at the time, which was that the girl does not admit her love until the man has. You don't fall in love, because nice girls don't, until he's fallen in love with you and made his intentions clear. Austin's narrative voice is having none of that. She says, yeah, well, that, that's the ideal, that's what we're all supposed to do. Let, let's face it, girls, in real life we don't do that. <laughs> she says that, that Catherine fancied Henry, she fell in love with him, and he fell in love with her, partly because he knew of her partiality for him. It was partly gratitude, and that's what happens in real life. In Mansfield Park. She's had enough of this pretense. Let other pens dwell on guilt and misery. I quit such odious subjects as soon as I can, impatient to restore everybody, not greatly in fault themselves, to tolerable comfort and to have done with all the rest. Austin's endings are intelligent endings for intelligent readers. The novels might seem to be romances. They might seem to focus primarily on getting married, on the right person getting the right spouse. But they emphasise at the end that nothing is perfect and nothing is that neat. And that's why you don't get the Hollywood big scene. The Hollywood adaptations tend to end on the proposal, the big kiss, the big clinch, or the wedding scene. Austin's novels go past it quickly, or they go sideways, so that Emma ends, not with Emma's marriage, but with a second-hand account of that marriage, through Mr Elton, by Mrs Elton. And not only do we not see the marriage, and not only is that wedding described by someone who wasn't there, but they also disparage it in terms of very little lace, <laughs> very little white, white satin. <clears throat> Selina would be quite shocked when she heard. Mansfield Park gallops past. We don't even get the proposal scene. We're just told, oh, well, when the time was right, you know, they'd been sitting around under trees all summer. So, you know, Edmund decided that these kind of mild eyes would do as well as sparkling dark ones if they got married. Because that isn't entirely what Austin is, is about. Underlying the romance is the desperate fear of insecurity, of what happened to women if they didn't get the house. Because remember, this is long before the Married Women's Property Act, and long before there were many respectable and possible professions for women. So you were kind of damned if you did and damned if you didn't. If you got married, you didn't own anything, unless you had a good lawyer so that your marriage settlements gave you a decent jointure. If you didn't get married, 
and you didn't have money left to you in your own right, you were in trouble as well. So it's not surprising that the girls want a good fortune and a good husband who will look after them, not only during the lifetime of the marriage, but during their anticipated widowhood. And Austin, as you know, had reason to understand insecurity. She had reason to understand what it was like to lose a long-loved home and reason to know what it was like to be poor. So the girls aren't gold diggers. They are sensible. They have both sense and sensibility. Now over to you for questions. questions because I've left four and a half minutes <laughs> if you want to learn more about Jane Austen please do take one of our brochures or go onto the www.conted.oxacuk website where you can read about day schools weekly classes summer schools foundation certificate masters, all sorts of different ways, different flexible ways of learning and studying Jane Austen, among a myriad of other things. And please do feel free to email me. I'm sandie dot byrne at conted oxac uk. And I'm always happy to talk the hind legs off a donkey about Jane Austen. <laughs> Any questions? Yes. Um, I just want to point out, at the time of Emma's release, um, was a lot of public criticism as well? Austin got a very good rave review from Sir Walter Scott, uh, about, partly about Emma, in which this most famous and wealthy novelist of the day said that she could do some things better than he could. So that was... Sadly, she, she didn't live to see him writing about her in his journal when he was talking about how sad it was that a, a, such a talented young woman had died and how wonderful she was. I'm sure she would have loved that. Okay, well, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you.